Are you ready for the ultimate true crime experience? Get ready to dive deep into the world of mystery and justice. Introducing Without Warning Podcast. Welcome to this season of The Verdict, where we delve into a remarkable story of triumph in the face of adversity. This is the story of Jonathan Cruz that few victims ever get to savor. A jury hearing the evidence of a shooting and awarding the family an astounding $206 million verdict. Yes, $206 million verdict. To put that in perspective, it was the 12th largest verdict in the country. But this victory didn't come easy. It was the result of nine grueling, grueling years marked by unyielding dedication, relentless investigation, and an unshakable commitment to justice. Join me as I introduce you to the remarkable individuals aptly named the Avengers who fought tirelessly to bring this case to justice, undeterred by the obstacle posed by none other than the Coppell Police Department, Swifts, the medical examiner, and even the Dallas District Attorney himself. The team that I refer to as the Avengers stood up for justice, unwavering in the face of intimidation, tricks, and deceit. As always, I'm going to bring you the facts and the evidence and allow you to be the ultimate judge. In this episode, I will take you back to the very beginning with Dallas attorney Tom Shaw, the legal brains of this incredible journey. And stay tuned until the end where you will hear from Jonathan's mother, Pam Cruz. Tom, how did you end up with the Cruz case? Interesting question. John Cruz, the, one of the plaintiffs and, and Jonathan's father, was an opponent in a case that I had, oh, maybe five or six or years before um, I became involved in Jonathan's case. John represented Carol Shelby and I represented six investors in a business we contended that Carol Shelby was a partner. And John and I had some some pretty good battles. And after that case resolved itself, I continued to communicate with John because I I I liked him. And I, I wanted to continue the friendship beyond just the case. And we'd exchange calls over the years. And one, one call, he said, would you mind if Pam and I came by to talk to you about something? And I said, sure, you're, you're welcome to come by anytime. So he and Pam came by and um they told me about Jonathan's death and i was surprised because like a lot of people my age and i look at the the obituaries in the local newspaper and i hadn't seen Jonathan's obituary so it 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 struck me um in a very emotional way because i have a son and he's you know a little bit younger than Jonathan, 
Um, but I, I, I couldn't imagine being in John and Pam's shoes and have it, have the dignity that they seem to have in, in connection with the death of their son. Anyway, uh, they told me about it. They asked if, if I would be willing to represent them in connection with suing Brenda Lazaro, uh, as I found out was her name, the, the girlfriend that, that shot Jonathan. And I, I tried to be very frank with them and said, I, I, I just don't see a, a lawsuit out of this uh, with, without um, having a lot of information before you file. And it's, it seemed to me at that point, they just wanted to confirm their hunch and belief that Brenda Lazaro had murdered their son. And I had just met you, um, I think it was that summer, if I'm not mistaken, or that spring uh, before I met with them. And uh, we exchanged telephone numbers and, and I vowed that I wanted to work with you sometime on one of your cases. And I recommended that they contact you and engage you to investigate and determine if they were right, that Brenda Lazaro had in fact murdered their son. And evidently they, they called you, you uh, interviewed, you did all the legwork that normally uh, my office would do in connection with a, a lawsuit. And you pretty much had it nailed down within maybe six months that you were relatively comfortable that uh, Jonathan had been murdered. So after that, the Cruises came back and told me that they had engaged you, you'd collected all this information, and that it was now time to sue Brenda Lazaro for the wrongful death of Jonathan, and the rest is history. A couple of things I want to touch base on. Going back to when you were in court with John, you were in court with John in front of the same judge that was. That's right. That's right. We, uh, that, thank you for reminding me. In the uh, Carol Shelby case, we ended up in what's referred to as county court at law in Dallas County number three, which was uh, the Honorable Sally Montgomery. And it was a high profile case because Carol Shelby is a, is a famous figure in auto enthusiast um, area and was the subject of a movie Ford versus Ferrari uh, after the um, our case. So uh, Judge Montgomery took a personal interest in the case and was very happy when we were able to resolve it. And then when we returned to her court, she kind of chuckled that that well this is the way it should be when opponents 
are representing one another uh, in subsequent cases. And I was very, very complimented by that. Also, probably the biggest thing was John is not used to losing in court. No. I believe it was a source of uh, humor throughout our case that you beat him and he felt ripped off by that um or well i i don't know that i i I don't know that i beat him but um my side (laughs) well my 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 clients prevailed on mr shelby to uh give them the cars that they had contracted for and fortunately or unfortunately um we were the only ones that won uh, there were a number of other investors that chose a different route to pursue the case than we did, and John beat them all, and there were a lot of them. And as I remember it throughout our case, uh, for Jonathan, he is not used to losing to anyone, so that was a huge compliment, and he knew that you would take his son's case very seriously. I felt like he had a lot of confidence in me. Well, I know he did. How did you and I meet? We met at the uh, uh, Dallas Symphony debutante ball where both of our sons were uh, escorting the lovely ladies um, their age. I guess it was maybe freshman or sophomore year of college, as I recall. And we were sitting at the same table and we got to talking and, and I was fascinated by your story, um, particularly how you became involved in the uh, private investigation area and that you had uh, gone through quite a trauma uh, that resulted in, in your interest in solving these these unsolvable cases we found uh you know a good connection and um we continued to i i think we continued to talk uh from time to time and and finally i got the the cruise case as a result of john and pam coming in and i referred them to you and um like i i said earlier the rest is history Yes, the rest is history, and we've worked together now since, what, 2015? 16? I was thinking it was 10 years, but um, that, that may not be. It, it just seems like we've known each other forever, and, right. and I don't mean that as an unnecessary compliment, but I mean, uh, I, 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 I'm very um, fortunate to be able to work with you. As I am with you, I work with a lot of attorneys and you know how I feel about the way you work and your ethics. And also you're so smart. You always find a way for your client, which I appreciate because I always feel like we work for the underdog that doesn't have a Tom Shaw in all my cases, so which is unfortunate. Thank Um, you. It's, you know, it's true. You know, I don't say things I don't mean. In the late 70s, a brotherhood of criminals lived by one unbreakable rule. Yeah, don't snitch. Those who did 
ended up in the ground. He had dirt under his fingernails, like he had tried to dig his way out. And when their own kids turned on them, they would do anything and they didn't care who they had to kill. The Killing Month, August 1978, is the new podcast from WRAL. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. No, I know. So, Tom, in the Cruz case, there were several strategies that you used to further the case. Tell me how you get evidence. Sure. Um, in a in civil lawsuit like the one we filed for the cruises, there are several different ways of getting evidence that's usable at trial. There's interrogatories, which are written questions to the defendant in this case or to the plaintiff. There are requests for production, which we serve on the other attorney, and that asks for specific documents that may be usable at trial. The third is requests for admission, where you make a declarative sentence and then you ask if that's true or not. The fourth is what are called depositions, which is the equivalent of trial testimony in front of a court reporter, but instead of in front of a jury, it's being uh, typed by a court reporter, but only the attorneys are there and, and their parties sometimes. And the final way is subpoenas. In this particular case, who did you subpoena? Oh, gosh. Um, in this particular case, we you use a subpoena in order to obtain documents from entities and people that aren't parties. So just about every person that we took the deposition of who was not a party to the lawsuit, we would subpoena. And that means that it's a, it's a document that's served by a process server or by a sheriff on the witness. And if the subpoena is proper and the appropriate amount of money is attached to it for actually attending the deposition and then producing documents, then the person served with the subpoena has a legal obligation to appear and produce documents or object prior to the dep the um, either the production of documents or the production of documents and the deposition. And the, uh, the other purpose of a subpoena is to compel someone's attendance at trial or compel someone to produce documents for trial. And we used that um, I thought pretty effectively in the Cruz case. And that was, in, in all fairness, that was thanks to you and Danielle. Well, I was just going to ask, Tom, can a subpoena be ignored? Well, it can be at the, uh, at the risk of the person <clears throat> who subpoenaed. You subpoenaed the police department for the records, for the case file. In connection with the, the lawsuit that was filed against uh, the defendant, in this case, Brenda Lazaro, we sought production of the photographs, for example, that the police department took at the crime scene. Uh, there was a period of time that there was an open investigation and they were unable and unwilling 
to produce those documents in discovery. Eventually, we <clears throat> uh, called into question the legitimacy of the objection by the city, the city in this case of Capel, which the police department is an arm of. It's part of the executive branch of the city of, of Capel. They failed to produce a number of documents. If you serve an agency and they ignore the subpoena, what happens? The court issues a, um, the first, they issue a show cause. And it's basically that, that the person who was subpoenaed or the entity that was subpoenaed should show cause why they shouldn't be held in contempt, which is the punishment for not complying with the subpoena. The court can hold the person or the entity in contempt. Going back to 2016, you filed the lawsuit for Pam and John. Yes. And you also filed a subpoena to get the case file. The police department did not want to release that. So you all went to court. We filed what's called a motion to compel, which we filed, I, we subpoenaed the records. They filed what's called an objection to the subpoena in a timely manner. We filed what's called a motion to compel, which asked the court to order the city to produce the documents that we'd requested. We had a hearing and as a result of the intervention by Judge Montgomery, the city and I agreed on how the documents were gonna be produced and that everything was gonna be produced that was responsive to our subpoena. And we thought we had a complete production and we didn't find out until after the case had um, been final that the production was, was less than complete. So they sent Detective Camp to court who uh, was their representative who told the judge that you two would work it out. Y'all went into the hallway and discussed, like you said, how it was gonna be turned over. And then a few pages were sent to us or- That's right. Were you under the impression that was everything since he told the judge they were gonna turn over everything? Well, based upon that representation to the judge, my understanding was that it was a complete production and I had a right to rely on that since the city sent Detective Camp as its representative to appear at the hearing and act on its behalf. Is that unusual to make that representation and not turn over everything? Uh, that's how our legal system works, that when somebody makes a representation to the court, they, they are representing that they are being truthful and that they're subject to um, being penalized by the court if it's not true. Now, the, that's the idea of contempt. And in this case, 
camp falsely represented to Judge Montgomery, in my opinion, that it was a complete production. I, it, it was not a complete production. No, and we didn't know that until after the case. And in Camp's defense, he may not have known it wasn't a complete defense, but you know we wouldn't know that unless we were able to take his deposition, and we were not able to take his deposition. So we weren't in a position to challenge his opinion or his truthfulness. But if the city chooses him to go down and make that representation, then they are the city is bound by that representation. Otherwise, he would not have made it. I'm just going to argue with you just for a second on this, Tom. I believe that he knew the case file since he worked the case. And I believe when you're turning over the documents, you know what you're turning over. That's a reasonable argument, Sheila. I, I, I can't disagree with you. The only thing that I can say is that I don't know what's in his heart. And I don't know if he, you know, didn't know or if, if he forgot or if he was intentionally uh, made that representation. I just don't know. Unless we were able to take his deposition, we, we don't know um, that he knew what he was saying was false. Okay, let's go back to that for one second. He represents in front of a judge. Isn't that under oath? Yes. So what would a deposition do? Wouldn't he do the exact same thing in a deposition? Well, then I could question him. Well, isn't it a fact that, uh, that documents weren't produced and that what you said was not true? And isn't it a fact that you're in charge of that file? And isn't it a fact that you would know what's in that file? And isn't it a fact that you knew what was in that file and yet, and you knew that there was things missing and yet you told the judge that everything was there? They're great questions. That, that's the way I would have presented it in a, in a deposition, but it's kind of like one of those things where, where does it get you in the end? Okay, so the city, the city um, was was either negligent or intentionally misrepresenting to the court that documents weren't produced that uh, that 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 was a complete file when in fact it wasn't. We won, and you know their their position, the city's position is well, you know, what harm? Well, there was harm because our system doesn't work if entities and people aren't truthful. And we've got to be able to rely on the truthfulness of what's said by these entities. And it, it you know, it becomes, this issue becomes one that is being, you know, questioned nationally right now. At, at what point can you believe what you're being told by the government? And in order for our justice system to work, if governmental entities come in and make representations, you know, they've got to stand by them. Well, to that point, it's the integrity of the police department and the investigation. In I, this case, yes, it is. I asked Pam Cruz to talk about the early days seeking justice for Jonathan, the motions, the court dates, 
the numerous hearings. And who was her adversary? I think you'll be surprised at who it was or not. You guys have a motion for Coppell Police Department to turn over the records on Jonathan's case. Detective Camp shows up and goes in front of Judge Montgomery as a representative of Coppell saying that he is going to work with Tom Shaw and turn over the records from Jonathan's case. Do you remember how you felt? You know, that's everything I wanted, you know? So yeah, very, that would have been a very, um, you know, hopeful moment. I called you just full of hope and very excited. I just kept wanting to believe that everybody told the truth. It makes me want to cry. I'm giving Sergeant Camp a hug outside the courtroom afterwards. I guess I'm forgetting how I felt then and realizing how I feel now about that, finding out it wasn't true. So much wheel spinning and so and it's unnecessary. We weren't the bad people. You know, the murderer is the bad person. And we're the ones that they're treating like we're in the way. You know, telling us, go away, live your life, don't push us. Um, we're going, I do remember Sergeant Camp telling us um, that they were having to go around ahead of us, trying to shore up anywhere that we might be able to get any information. And that was after they had promised to give it to Tom. It's more than a promise to give it to Tom. It is going in front of a judge saying you are going to comply. Right. It's, it's more than just telling a family a lie. You're telling a judge one thing and doing another. And right. there's repercussions. Yeah, nothing's happened. You'd, Nothing will. Right. Um, and that, that's very disappointing because, you know, you think about perjury, you think about all these different things that we expect in a court case. And you get on that stand, you have to answer things, even things you don't want to answer, things that are uncomfortable. I mean... To me, I've always thought of that as so serious um, that uh, to me, it's unfathomable that somebody would say something in front of a court and not do it. And I know that people do it all the time and I know they get away with it. I don't understand. It's unfortunate that there aren't any repercussions. It's even more unfortunate that people will stand behind that saying that's acceptable. Anybody who will stand behind that is somebody who's never had to investigate a crime or had to fight to get justice for their family. It makes me sick too because I raised my kids to have just absolute respect for police and firemen. You know, if we ever saw one in public, I, you know, they'd wave. They, you know, if they were close enough, they'd want to go over and give them a hug. They're just so excited and. Um, you know, I always taught them, they'll help you. They're your friend. When they got older and they were driving, I told them, you get pulled over, you do nothing but treat them with absolute respect. I don't care how they treat you. You can tell a judge later, you be respectful to them. And here they are, the ones that are being so disrespectful to Jonathan. He had thought of being a police officer at one point. You know, he really seriously considered that. And all I can think is, you know, if they had people like, him on the force, things like this wouldn't have happened. He would have never, he would have never done what's being done to him and to his family. 
Thank you for listening to The Verdict episode, The Avengers. Stay tuned for the gripping story of Jonathan Cruz's remarkable victory as we continue to bring you the evidence and let you decide. Without Warning Podcast, available now on all major podcast platforms.